All right, so one of the themes I've tried to emphasize as we're entering into the book of John is the fact that the book of John is organized in such a way as to be a sort of walking through the tabernacle. And as we think about this idea of walking through the tabernacle, I've given to you the outline in word form, but also an image at the bottom of page two. So I guess that's on the back for you. So have fun jumping between that. Uh, But what you're going to see is point two is the brazen altar for sacrifices. And so the idea... Brazen means made of bronze, and so we have this idea of a, an altar that is bronze, that's for sacrifice, and it's at the front of the tabernacle. And if you look at the, the image now on page 2, you can see this altar of bronze there right next to the entrance, and it's labeled there an altar of burnt offerings. And so it's specially designed, has a grating that allows for things to sit on it and as they're burning to be able to see the ash kind of falling through. So the idea of a burnt sacrifice where the sacrifice is consumed by fire. Now, as we think about this entering in to the tabernacle to go into the presence of God and these stages that exist, we also have to deal with the idea that there are sacrifices that occur in the Holy of Holies with blood. And so, when we think about Jesus as the Lamb of God, we think about Him as a sacrifice, and we would see that on the brazen altar, and we would see that also on the golden altar that is in the Holy of Holies. And so, these two places where there is sacrifice is where our attention is drawn to by this idea of Jesus being the Lamb of God. So, before we looked at Jesus Christ being himself God and being himself the tabernacle, the the place where God dwells. So he's God and he is the place where God dwells. And as we see him as both, we then come into this idea of Christ is the priest entering the tabernacle and he's the sacrifice. He is the priest and he is the sacrifice. So he comes in as the Lamb of God and he is also the one who is offering himself. And so, John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as we consider this introduction to Christ, I want you to be aware of the type that came before. So look at page 3. You have Exodus 27, verses 1 to 8. This is the instruction that's given in Exodus for this construction of of the altar. And we all have a tendency to kind of want to skip over the instructions about how to make this stuff. And so because God knows our hearts, he made sure to write another section where he says, and here is the thing and how they made it. And then he just lists out the same information again. And you go, okay, fine. We're through this thing. It's happened twice now. And then at the end, it's like, now all these things were made. And it lists them all out and describes them. And so you have to read about it three times. And so that's how God wrote the book. And we all go, why did you put it in there at all, God? I mean, this part's boring. I don't care about your altar. And what that needs to do is make us, as soon as you read that part, right, the the quiet part is said out loud, and we go, "Uh uh-oh, I just realized I do not care at all about the worship of God. Okay, that's, that's why we're bored by things like the description of the bronze altar. It's because we think that God should be therapeutic for us rather than thinking that we were made for God. Okay, so that's a problem. So as you go through the description of the altar, 
and you find your mind starting to wander every time, I want you to be encouraged to think, I do not care about the worship of God, and to confess that in your mind silently in prayer to God. And if you find it interesting, then what you do is you go, thank you, Lord, for causing me to find your worship interesting. I can remember in my youth finding it very boring. And I can remember now finding it fascinating. So change, right? We can all grow. So let's do that. Let's go through this. Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. Here's what God says. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. A cubit's about 18 inches. Cubits are pretty cool. God made a measuring device called the human forearm. And that measuring device is the length of a cubit. It's very convenient. So what God did is he says, this is the way that men who are working all the time tend to measure things, is kind of estimating with their own arm. It's very convenient. You don't have to have any pockets, which is useful when you're wearing robes. And so if you can just put your arm up to measure things, then you're able to get a sense of how long something is. So cubits, 18 inches, it's about the length of a human forearm. And so when you look at this idea and you're measuring to make things and you can measure with this cubit, that's very useful. So this is the size of this thing, three cubits. So what's that? It's four and a half feet. Okay. So we have it's five cubits long, five cubits wide, and seven and a half feet. And it's four and a half feet tall. Verse two, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So this continuous bronze object, and there's horns. There's these spikes coming off of the corners. And you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. Okay, these are instruments. These are tools. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. So the, the tools themselves, the altar, all of its bronze, and the bronze together helps us to have sort of this sense of the continuous connection of these things, that they're set apart to work with each other. And so as you look at what has been made here, a pan to collect ashes. I mean, if you burn a whole bowl or a whole lamb, there are a lot of ashes. I mean, think about the amount of ashes coming out of this place. They burn the fat, they burn the ashes. When you burn fat, it renders liquefies. When you have ashes and fat together, you know what that produces? Make soap. There would just be an enormous amount of soap coming out of this place. That is the that effect. It's an interesting symbolic cleansing. Huge quantities of soap being produced as you deal with these burnt offerings. Verse 4, you shall make a grate for it a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings as its four corners. And so these rings are so that they can be attached on to poles. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath. That the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. 
The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. Okay, so this is an altar that's designed to be transportable. It's hollow. It's meant to be light. It has rings for poles. And there's a design that was given by God, and this reminds us of the fact that the worship of God is given to us in detail by God. That He wants us to worship Him in the way that He's appointed, the way that He has revealed, the pattern that's been given to us. These are all things that are contained here in seed form, symbolic form. Now, later on, the tabernacle gets replaced with the temple, and it is not portable. It is not portable. So now, jump with me to Exodus 29. And what we have is we have this beginning to think about the sacrifices there. So we've got the altar, and now let's think about lambs on the altar. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Okay, so every day, every day, every day, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. This went on, this went on for 1,400 years. Now on the Sabbath, they were supposed to do it twice, every morning and every evening. And there are the feast days. There's the new moons. So you have every morning, every evening. And then you have the Sabbath. And then you have the new moons. And then you have the feast days. Individuals, when they commit sins, were to bring sacrifices. These are just the daily, regular sacrifices we're talking about right now. There are the sacrifices where people offer something as a free will offering, where people make vows. There are the sacrifices for particular things. We have the different types of sacrifice. We have the sin and trespass offering. We have the burnt offering. We have the grain offering. We have the peace offering. The amount of animals being slaughtered. The amount of blood coming out of this place. We are talking about a cascading waterfall of blood. A testimony day by day of blood, blood, blood. Is that what you see here in the worship? Places where people worship today where there's lots of blood, people don't think too well of those places of worship. Animal sacrifice would probably freak most of us out. This idea of a priest getting up and killing an animal. Verse 39, One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, or between the two evenings is the literal Hebrew. The, uh, there's no place in the Bible that says where exactly or what time of day there were supposed to be the sacrifices, but what we find in terms of the documents that are written uh, that are sort of from the same time period, the morning sacrifice was at 9, and the evening sacrifice was at 3 p.m. And so you see at 9 a.m., 3 p.m. is the time that we find in the Mishnah. Also, you shall make its pan, sorry, wrong place, verse 40, with the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Okay, so you got a lamb, we've got flour, 
and you have oil, and you have a drink offering. We're told elsewhere that when these offerings are given, there's supposed to be salt with them. Salt. 41. And the other lamb you shall offer between the two evenings, and shall offer with it the grain offering, and the drink offering is in the morning, for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Okay, so a sweet aroma, the idea here is it's a placating thing. It assuages. It's assuaging the wrath of God, his, his justice, his hatred of evil, his desire to punish wickedness. That's what all this blood is about. All this blood is pointing to the justice of God, the demand for punishment for evil. Sometimes we, we think lightly of evil. We don't think of it as something that needs Punishment, we feel like vengeance is a dirty word. No, vengeance is not evil. Vengeance is not dirty. Vengeance is the Lord's. What's dirty, what's evil, is pulling it into our own hands. God is just. And justice extracts vengeance for wickedness. And all of these things are testimonies to our wickedness. offering made by fire to the Lord. You know, the burning up of a thing, the interesting thing about that is it can't be consumed anymore by humans. Right? If it's burned up, there's nobody who's going to eat that. You can try to eat the ash. I mean, have fun. But if it's consumed by fire, it's not able to be eaten by a human being. And so the result is that this thing is dedicated, being consumed by fire, to the God who is a consuming fire. And so... The burnt offering points to the idea of holiness, consecration. The death and the idea of the sin offering, that points to the need for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 42, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet to speak with you. The tabernacle, when we think about the tabernacle as a place of meeting where God speaks, Christ comes and he speaks. He's a prophet to his people. But the church, as a replacement for the tabernacle, you come to the church and the presence of Christ exists for us in the Word. We we partake in Christ with the Word. And it nourishes our souls. And it causes us to be filled more with the Spirit. To have the indwelling increasingly in us. This idea of a continual burnt offering. It's not continual. It's not literally burning every second of the day. It's continual in that there are checkpoints continually. Day by day. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. It's continual. There is no break. 1,400 years. Continual burnt offering throughout your generations. So whenever you see the idea of continual prayer in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see that referenced a lot. Continual prayer. Okay? There's a background to that. It doesn't, we, we read it very literalistically and without thinking about the, New, the Old Testament. Okay? When you see to be in prayer continually, what that's telling you is every morning and every evening you should come before the throne of grace and offer up supplications, offer up prayers, it's a reminder to us of this, of this pattern that was given of continual daily worship. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet 
you, to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle should be sanctified by my glory. Okay? We are the children of Israel. We are the church. We are the, the people of God. And so as children in the kingdom, we need to remember our need to meet together, and we need to remember that we are made holy by the presence of the glory of God. And that presence is not visible with the naked eye. It is visible with our understanding, and it is delivered to us by the Word. And so the glory of God is here by the Word's presence. And so we stand for the reading of His Word, and we sing praises of His Word back, and we hear the Word explained and preached. And when we take the sacraments, that's a visible symbol that represents the Word. And so the presence of God, the glory of God, the knowledge of God is in our midst, and we are made holy by the glory of God. So, verse 44, So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. In this old covenant, there was a priesthood that was distinct from the people. There was a kleros laity distinction. The laity, the people, the kleros, the priests. We are told now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we are all priests. We are a nation of priests. We are a people who are devoted to this priestly work. And so we don't need human priests other than Christ now. We are all priests after the order of Melchizedek. And we are to participate in the worship of God. This is not a show. This is not something to just consume. You are participating actively in the worship of God. And you do that by judging and participating actively with your mind in every element. So when you hear preaching, we're told in the book of 1 Corinthians that they who listen should judge. You don't just take in passively. You don't just receive. You don't just absorb by osmosis. You judge. And in the act of judging, what you are doing is actively participating in the worship of God. And so as we participate together, it is not just some priest standing in front of you offering worship and you observing. It is us worshiping together. So we are all a consecrated people, a holy people, made holy by the glory of God. Verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And we were saved from sin. We were saved not from Pharaoh, but from Satan. We were saved not from Egypt, but from the world. And we were saved not from just a bondage in terms of physical chains, but from the slavery of sin, the flesh. And we have been given over to a liberty of the Spirit to do good works. We have a greater salvation than that being pulled out of Egypt. God dwells amongst us. These were all types. These were all shadows. And He brought us up out of the world. And we will know that He is our God. So go to page 4. The book of Hebrews translates some of this for us into the New Covenant era and explains it. All of this stuff 
is captured in this little statement by John when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's meditate on this. What does Hebrews say? Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 17. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Those foods would be pointing to like the sacrificial eating. The eating of the sacrifices by the priests. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, right, to make holy, so sanctify, that he might make holy the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Right? We, there's not a physical Jerusalem that's our holy city. It's silly to call it the holy land in a sort of way now where you, you attribute holiness as though there's something there for us, some sort of religious significance now. No, the city of Jerusalem does not have a special religious significance for us now. We have a church that is throughout the world. That is the continuing city. It is the heavenly Jerusalem come to earth. It is the throne of heaven invading earth. This is the continuing city. This is symbol of the saints. Therefore, let us go forth to Him outside the camp. We're leaving the world when we come into the presence of God. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So that connection, the idea of the continuous offering of the burnt offerings, we have the same sort of thing with the continuous offering of praise or psalm singing. Psalm singing is an offering in the New Covenant era. And so we offer these praises up to God. And look what it calls it. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Confess our faith to His name. So, it's a fruit of the lips. It's, it's something that's due to Him. He has a claim on it. These are fruits. He... He planted the Word in us. He causes us to grow. He nurtures us. And there's a bearing of fruit. And that bearing of fruit is a harvest that God deserves. That we give Him praise. It is a fruit of the lips. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. All of our obedience, doing good, sharing with one another, that's all a sacrifice to God. Right? Romans 12 talks about this idea of us offering ourselves as an acceptable sacrifice. We look to what God commands in His Word and we know how to give ourselves as an acceptable sacrifice by looking to what God commands in His Word. Not because we are trying to pay for our own sins, 
Christ has already paid for them. He's the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. But because we have been saved, we have been made holy by the blood of Christ. We have been set apart. We are bronze instruments. We are gold instruments, holy for service to God. We are a priesthood. Out of gratitude, we should serve God. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. But they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy, and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so for those who are more mature in the faith, that want to lead you, that want to help you, that want to teach you, who have authority, given office, nominated, elected, tested, ordained, right? there's this responsibility to submit to lawful leadership and to do it in a way that is profitable for yourself, that gives joy to them. And you know what we're told is, John tells us there is no greater joy than this, and to see your children walk in the truth. Do you want to give joy to me? Do you want my soul to rejoice? Walk in the truth, beloved. Let me see the fruit of obedience given to God. Let me see your lips give the fruit of praise to the Lord God Almighty and be a holy people, assembled together, a priesthood working together. That work is a joy. And so much I get to see of it. It is a joy. Now, thinking about this, as we, as we see the book of Hebrews helping to connect us into the New Covenant era, I would encourage you, on your own time, to go study Numbers 28 and 29 and Leviticus 23. The listing out of the feasts and the listing out of the sacrifices there. Every single one of those typifies symbolizes, gives to us a head of doctrine to think about, about Christ. Every one of them. What do those holy days mean? What do those sacrifices mean? They are all encapsulated in the reality of Christ. And all of it is captured symbolically for us in a simplified new ceremony called the Lord's Supper. All that complexity all of that outward pomp, all of that glory captured into the New Testament in the Lord's Supper. So, we have the list of the days. Right? There's the daily sacrifice. There's the Sabbath, the new moon, the Passover. There's the seven days of the unleavened bread feast that follows Passover. There's the feast of weeks called first fruits. There's the Feast of Trumpets. There's the Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is a fast that was once a year where you have the high priest going in to the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. And you have tabernacles where people would sit in booths. All of these things are simplified down. We have the daily sacrifices. All we have now is morning and evening worship daily. All of the other things, Sabbath, New Moon, all the feasts, simplified into the Lord's Day. This is the feast day of the Lord. This is the simplified down New Covenant administration. Now, we know all of that's going to happen. It's all going to get simplified down and made portable to the world because the fulfillment is coming. So look at page 5, verse 29. 
the next day, we're in day two. John, John, so far, we've gone through two days. The first day, people come and talk to John, and they say, who are you? His answer was, I'm the guy that was prophesied in Isaiah that was going to make straight the way of the Lord. I'm going to bring in baptizing. I am not literally Elijah, but I am in the position of authority and power of Elijah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet that was prophesied in Moses. But rather, Christ is Jesus. And He is the prophet. And He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, my hope for you is that you will have in your mind an outline of animal sacrifice and its purpose and that you will understand its origins. And this is something you could explain to other people as you become familiar with it. So we all need to remember the first animal sacrifice is given right after the fall. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall, Adam and Eve sin, and there's a forgiveness of sins that's offered. There's the promise in Genesis 3.15, which tells us that the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the serpent. So we have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Then, with animal sacrifice immediately given after, what happens is you have Adam and Eve given animal skins as a covering. And that animal skin points to two things. The animal that died and the idea of a covering. Now the covering covers up sin and guilt and shame. And the presence of the righteousness of Christ, the idea of a merit that's not ours, that's what's pointed to by the idea of having Christ's substitution for us to fulfill the law. We get this idea of animal sacrifice pointed to again in Genesis 4. Abel offers animal sacrifice. Cain does not. Cain is not accepted by God. He does not have faith and he does not offer sacrifice out of faith and instead does what he wants out of unbelief. He kills Abel and there's a separation of the church and the world and what you have is a separated worship at that point. The church and the world are distinct. Now, later on we get to Abraham being pulled out of the world to kind of make a holy people. And he's given circumcision to differentiate the church from the world. But we get into this idea of animal sacrifice again in a serious way. Genesis 22, verses 1-19 through is a huge text, both in terms of it's a significant length, but it's also very important. Because it gives to us this idea of a substitute so that we do not die. That gets emphasized here in a more explicit way. So I want to read through you this story. Now it came to pass, we're on page 5, Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. A burnt offering. This is a grotesque idea. If you think about animals as a burnt offering, you think about the idea of animals being burned. You think about the process of them being offered. I mean, executing your son in order to have him die 
as a sacrifice and then offering him as a burnt offering. Okay, now this is something that is condemned by God over and over again throughout Scripture where people started offering their children to Molech. But what's the difference between what's good and what's evil? It's what God commands. Okay, so this idea of offering of offering Isaac as a sacrifice, we can think of it as very grotesque. And now, remember, this points forward to Christ, and Isaac doesn't die, but Christ did. And Christ volunteered for it. This whole thing is a drama to point to what Christ volunteered to do. And every time anybody wants to actually offer their son, offer a child as a human sacrifice, God forbids it and stops it, or he says this is a wicked crime, and he offers punishment for it. Except when he offers his own son, who voluntarily comes to die, and to suffer under the wrath of God, which is worse than any fire. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Mount Moriah, by the way, is the mount of the temple, Zion. I'm told that later. Chronicles tells us that this is identifying here. So we have this idea of a temple, a tabernacle, a place of worship here that's being pointed to. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we'll come back to you. The word lad there kind of masks the meaning. Okay, It's the same word that's translated young man earlier. Okay, these are young men. And he, Isaac's a young man. Isaac's not some like little boy going along going, Dad, what are you doing? Right? This is, Isaac's a young man. He's stronger than Abraham. Okay, that means... Guess who didn't punch Abraham in the face? Isaac. When, when Isaac saw, Dad, you don't have a, you don't have a lamb to uh, offer? So you're tying, you're tying me up right now, which is normally what we do to the lamb. You're raising a knife right now, which is normally what we do to the lamb. Right, that, that's, Isaac does not resist. Isaac remarkably foreshadows Christ here in terms of his willingness to go along with things. The word lad, you feel like it's a little boy who's just kind of being acted on. Isaac and Abraham both have remarkable faith. It's interesting that Hebrews 11 really talks about the faith of Abraham who believed that, hey, if I kill Isaac, you know what? That means God's going to resurrect him because he promised to give me children through Isaac. Grandchildren. So he knew that. But guess who else believed this? Isaac believed this. And it's hilarious that the book of Hebrews mentions Abraham's faith but doesn't talk about Isaac sitting there on the altar and his faith at that time. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Right, he's able to carry it. Isaac's carrying it, carrying the wood. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. 
Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Does any of that echo in your mind about Christ being the only begotten Son of God? The language is so similar. It's on purpose. Verse 13, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So a ram is a male sheep. And so what we have is this idea of a young male being offered in a replacement for Isaac. Notice the language. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead of. Instead means in the place of. Standing in the place of. Christ stands in our place. He is sacrificed. He dies. His blood is spilt in our place instead as a substitute. Verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Okay, all that's promised earlier on. You see that with Genesis 15? And that's repeated here. And this idea of the reaffirmation of promises from God. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, I encourage you on your own to read Exodus 12, which is printed out for you there, which is the institution of Passover. And Passover is sort of the central sacrificial rite, the central sacrificial rite of the Old Covenant, which is why it gets used as the emblem when Jesus replaces all the sacrificial system with a remembrance of it. It's at Passover that he institutes the Lord's Supper. Replace it. And so we look at this text and you get this sense of the meaning of it, but the basic thing is this. Go to page 10. I've got a list for you the key chapters in Leviticus where you have lambs being offered. Okay, you can look at those 4, 7, 9, 12, 14. You're noticing how much this gets talked about in the Bible? That means God thinks it's significant. Okay, so here are things that you will find if you go through these various things, especially if you look at Exodus 12 about Passover. Sacrifices 
points to the taking away of sin. Sacrifice is a payment. A sacrifice of blood is required. Sacrifices are substitutes for the people who sacrifice. Sacrifices cover us and cause the wrath and curse of God to pass over us. Sacrifices cause the favor and blessing of God to land on us. And the sacrifices of bulls and goats and birds and grain are insufficient to placate the wrath of God and to gain his favor. This is explained plainly in Hebrews 10. It says, look at verse 4 there. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So what kind of blood is necessary? Well, we need the blood of a man because it's man who is the one who owes. And yet, that blood needs to be sufficiently valuable to pay for all of the debts of all of God's people. The only blood that is of sufficient value would be God's blood. But how can God bleed? He has not a body. And so, the incarnation, the taking on of a human body and mind, the union with God the Son, Christ coming, that's what we've been studying right in the beginning of John. Christ comes, and here's what Acts 20, verse 28 says, Therefore take heed to yourselves, Paul's talking to uh, pastors, and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of the Lord and God. Right? Christ is called Lord and God there which he purchased. What did he purchase the church with? His own blood. So we have the payment of blood, the only blood that was sufficient to stop this cascading waterfall of blood day by day for 1,400 years. Not even that. Really, it goes back earlier. We saw the first one was with Adam and Eve. So all of that time, 4,000 years of animal sacrifice. The only blood valuable enough to stop that constant flow of blood, of bulls and goats and birds is the blood of God. All of the blood of these sacrifices looks forward to Christ as the reality to come. And the Lord's Supper looks backward to the blood that was spilled. There's no more blood. There's a symbol for blood. It points to the reality that has already come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist points us to. And so in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. He's reminding us, Jesus is God. He's greater than me because he is the eternal one. Verse 31, I do not know him. I did not know him. He, he, wasn't, he didn't know until it was revealed to him who the Christ was. But that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. The baptizing that John did was preparatory. It was preparatory. He was preparing the way of the king. He was making straight the path. He was cleaning up the riffraff. He was taking guys on the side of the road and washing them up and spiffing them up to make them ready for the king. And so he takes essentially the San Francisco homeless corridor 
and makes everybody into a palace guard so that as the king comes through, they can stand at attention and serve him promptly and sincerely. He is preparing a people to serve Christ. And that's why what we see immediately after this is the disciples of John go from John to Jesus. He is preparing people to serve the one who is greater than him. And he says, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. But I've been chosen to prepare a people for him. Which matters more, shoelaces or people? I did not know him, but that he should, but he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. We talked last time about this, all these prophecies about how baptism is associated with the new covenant. I want to show you again. Hebrews is a book that explains to us the connections of the old and new testaments. Look at page eleven, Hebrews chapter six, verses one to three. Says this: Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to maturity. Perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this let us do if God permits. The doctrine of baptisms, plural, is considered an elementary basic thing. And the Bible is filled with baptisms. The baptisms that we see are baptisms in water, baptisms in oil, baptisms in blood. We see the idea of wine. We also see fire, spirit, language of pouring, sprinkling, dipping. The doctrine of baptisms, plural. Okay, well... In case you wonder what some of these baptisms are, okay, well look, Hebrews 9, verses 6 through 10. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So, while the Old Covenant tabernacle was still standing, the way in wasn't made manifest. Well, Jesus comes. He's the one. There's a tearing of the veil that separates the Holy of Holies in His death so that the way is made manifest. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, the Greek word there is baptismos, various baptisms, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. It is so common for people to think that baptism is only in the New Testament. It's not. There's baptism, multiple baptisms, lots of baptisms, all sorts of baptisms in the Old Testament. And this is explained right here in Hebrews. It's talking about doctrines of baptisms, plural. And then we have baptisms that were a part of the tabernacle worship. 
That's one of the reasons you have a laver of water, which we'll look at later. It's for baptisms. Washing. So these baptisms, these washings, are part of these ceremonies. John came to baptize, and his baptism is an Old Testament baptism. He came to baptize to prepare people for Jesus. Now, page 11, verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. He's talking about Jesus. I did not know him, Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. When Jesus gets baptized, there's a ton of interesting stuff that happens. And I've got like five minutes, so I'm going to talk fast. First, the baptism of Jesus is his anointing into his public ministry as prophet, priest, and king. As an anointing, it serves to initiate him into office, consecrate him for that work, to have a symbolic unity with the Trinity as a whole, acting on behalf of the Trinity, and a symbolic unity with his people, whom he's serving and blessing by his service. Then, there's an endorsement by God. Like, God calls down from heaven and says, this is my son. That's an endorsement. John's endorsing him. The Holy Spirit's endorsing him by hovering over him. There's an endorsing act. There's an empowering. The Holy Spirit's presence is about empowerment and His human nature. And it tells us, hey, guess what? These are the last days of the Old Covenant. These are the last days of the Old Covenant. Now, in terms of priestly washing, Leviticus 16 talks about the idea of the high priest. He goes in with all this priestly garb all this stuff. And he comes in and he washes himself. And then he does the sacrifice and he washes himself. There's this once a year high priest baptism that goes on. And this is a part of what is symbolized in Christ's baptism. This is the first, what we might call, Christian baptism. Or it's the first New Covenant baptism. John's baptism was Old Covenant baptism. And what we have is Christ comes and He takes all of the baptisms of the Old Covenant and He replaces them with New Testament baptism, Trinitarian baptism. This is the first time that you have it done in the name of the Trinity because you got the Son who's there and His body is a physical representation of who He is. The Holy Spirit's there in a physical representation form and God the Father's there in physical representation form. You can hear His voice coming from the sky. Trinitarian baptism. That being the first Trinitarian baptism, what you have is this idea that all of the stuff that was symbolized in all of the pouring, sprinkling, dipping of every variety in the Old Covenant, all of it gets captured into this New Covenant baptism. 
Now, with that being there, there's a sign versus reality relationship. A symbol represents things, and the reality is the thing. There are all sorts of symbols in the Old Covenant that relate to baptism. And the New Testament explains their meaning. The flood of the whole earth is viewed as a type of baptism. Moses passing through the Red Sea is viewed as a type of baptism. Joshua passing through the Jordan River is viewed as a type of baptism. Jonah going into the belly of a fish and into the depths of the sea is viewed as a type of baptism. And John the Baptist, baptism. We are shown in Acts 19.4 men who were baptized by John and then they had to be baptized in the name of Jesus. They had to be given the Trinitarian baptism. So we see the distinctiveness of all of this, the way in which all of it gets captured. And this is very similar to the way that Jesus captures all of the sacrifices in the Lord's Supper. So baptism in the New Covenant and the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant point for us to the reality of what Christ did and it also is explained for us by looking at all of the old types. They help us to unpack its meaning. So what's the reality that it all points to? It all points to, point 9 on page 12, Christ dying on the cross. That is a type of baptism. It, it's not just a type, it's the reality. Mark 10.39, Jesus says, look, you can't be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to have. The disciples will go, yeah, we can. Yeah, sure, totally. Totes my goats. We absolutely can. We've been baptized by John. We've been baptizing people. And in addition to that, we can absolutely do all of the things that you have been doing so far. He goes, no, you don't get it. I'm about to drink the cup of the wrath of God. I'm about to die and go below the earth like Jonah. You do not understand what my baptism is and so they can't go through the same reality he alone is the one who can go through it and this death his death the pouring of his blood is a baptism that washes away sin judges unbelief and forgives unbelief for those who are then given faith Baptism also points to the resurrection of Christ. And it also points to all of us being anointed with power to serve with Christ. Now those are things that are captured. And this is all throughout. So the power of baptism as a capturing symbol is something that takes a long time and a lot of texts to go through. And in trying to pull all these things together, my hope is that some of these texts you're already familiar with and it made it easier and faster for you to be able to review them. And then, my hope is also that with the Lord's Supper, that what you're able to get is this idea of the renewal of those things. But each of them, together, point to the reality of Christ and all of the types and shadows explain for us our current covenant signs. So what John is doing is he is telling us Jesus Christ, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the baptism of Jesus Christ does something very significant in history. It gives to us a sense 
of a new era. And so that's what we're entered into as we have Jesus Christ introduced to us as the Lamb of God. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.